hymn number 58. Brother Harold has asked us to mark, and we look forward to the opportunity to stand and encourage one another as we sing that in just a bit. For this present time, though, might we turn our attention to a continuing study of the overview of the New Testament. We have for several weeks looked intently with a view and a goal toward appreciating the major themes and lessons of each book, and we have journeyed to this point all the way from the book of Matthew to the completion of the book of Hebrews. In our study of those books, we have seen some dramatic and timeless lessons, in fact, eternally powerful lessons, inasmuch as they shall be those very matters by which you and I shall be judged as we stand before the august presence of the judgment bar of God. However, we have several more books yet to go, but might we note many of these are briefer accounts, shorter books, if you will, and today we open that study with the book of James. In five rather powerful and yet scintillatingly moving chapters, we find the recognition of this single book written by this gentleman named James. As we start that study and consider some of the teachings of those five chapters, might we appreciate that that brings us to this particular point in our study. Hebrews, that book we studied last Lord's Day, set before us, perhaps in great depth, the beauty of both Old and New Testament revelation, inasmuch as we stand so blessed and so privileged to be New Testament Christians. We saw in a passing beauty the nature of the tabernacle and how that Christ's covenant is better. In fact, it is perfect. We saw that Christ's sacrifice was better. In fact, it is perfect. We saw that the whole gospel system far exceeded in power anything the Old Testament ever had to offer. It is interesting that to close that book and turn to the next one, we do not now reach to another level of theoretical abstraction. We do not consider a book that's related in great depth and concreteness in that regard. Rather, this book is a masterpiece of Christian practicality. How do you and I live every moment of every day with the understanding of what must I think, what must I say, what must I do in order to please God? There is no book in the New Testament that highlights that point more briefly than the book of James. As we begin then briefly to overlook this book, consider some of the things found in the opening chapter. We learn immediately the author was James. There are several gentlemen by that name in the New Testament. Which one is this? It is not James the Apostle, the brother of John, nor is it the other Apostle James, the son of Alphaeus. This one was James, the half-brother of our Lord, the very one who did not believe on the Savior until after the resurrection. However, from that time onward, what a bulwark of the faith he was. He, in fact, was that very James mentioned in Acts the 15th chapter where Paul and Barnabas actually made note of the matter of circumcision and James gave the official decree of heaven that the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised. This was also that James mentioned in Galatians 2 verse 9 that was a pillar of the faith. And what a wonderful in individual he, in fact, seems to have been. But what things did he write? We can well imagine that the city of Jerusalem was a city beset by many persecutions, difficulties, and trials. And who better to discuss then this matter than the very one who worked in that city? And so we come to James 1 verse number 2 when he begins in a rather surprising fashion, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. He wasn't, of course, speaking about the character of enjoy falling into temptation, but rather it's what does that testing of one's faith produce. 
knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Do not we all need a double helping of patience, an appreciation of the perseverance and persistence that that will lead one to enjoy in life? That's the reason that we should appreciate when our faith is tried, it shall result in, upon our victory, a stronger faith, a faith that's able to withstand more. No wonder then we learn rather quickly in verse 5 of the opening chapter, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. We each also are in need of wisdom. The capability that takes knowledge and uses it properly for the accomplishment of that which would be the appropriate will of heaven. And do not we all need that degree of wisdom? We should pray to God for it. Ask Him and He has promised to bless us liberally and greatly with that. We should ever remember, though, verses 6 through 8, we must ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a sea driven of the, of the wind and tossed. And what's more, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. For isn't it still true? A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Through verse number 8. With those ideas opening the book, we can see James gets to the point quickly. These were individuals to whom he was writing whose faith was being tried. Circumstances were harsh and difficult to say the least. However, a ray of hope stands on, over the beacon. And as that horizon sets before us, verse number 12 says, Blessed is that man. Note the blessing comes in this time in what way? Blessed is that man who is able to overcome, who is able to appreciate the greatness of trial, but to come through faithfully and successfully and victoriously. For is it not true the crown of life is what will be received? Verse number 13 to 15, we learn that the source of these trials is not God per se. For let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There is thus a warning. When we appreciate that it's our lust, when we allow those lusts to lead to their conclusion, and we fall into that which our lusts have tempted us with, that's when that has ended in sin. Might we notice that that sin has as its final ending point death. It's no wonder the, short, the next verse is so brief but yet so powerful. Do not err, my beloved brethren. We should ever strive to walk pleasingly and faithfully, understanding that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, verse 17, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. It is no small wonder then. When James encourages his readers, those who hear, to ever live soberly and righteously, verse 22 highlights it in this fashion, Be not hearers of the word only, but be ye doers of the word. We need to apply that which we know. It is one thing to know it. It is another altogether to implement it hastily and in power day by day in life. What are some ways we can do that? Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why, James? For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Verses 18, 19, and 20. Verse 21, Lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and let us receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. 
The salvation of the human soul is found in the majesty of the Word of God and its implementation in life. To stand before God in judgment having known it and not obeyed it surely must be one of the most regretful and sad things imaginable. In fact, there will be many who perhaps will have known some part of it, but never have implemented it. And it's to them that the Lord will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Matthew 7, 23. Might we appreciate onward in that chapter. That is, we seek to implement the will of God and do it. We quickly appreciate that that word of God teaches a couple of things like this. Verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Are you and I thus a person who within great intention and devotion strives to live spotlessly as well as to help the orphans and the widows? Pure religion demands it. And so into chapter 2 we go, appreciating that through the first few verses of that chapter we're reminded of something that we must never forget. The recognition that we must never have the faith of God with respect of person. Verse number 1 highlights that thought. That simply means this. When a person with riches and great earthly possessions comes through our door, do we treat him any differently than we treat this other individual who obviously is not blessed with as many material things as he? His clothes are far less pricey. The car he drives is far less expensive. The house in which he dwells is far less in terms of its appearance. We must not have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect to person. In fact, verse 9 plainly says it this way, If we do, we are guilty of sin. Those are the words of our Lord through James. Isn't it any wonder then that the character of that faith not only demands impartiality or no respect to persons in its jurisprudence, it also involves this, beginning in verse 15. One of the quickest things that comes to our mind about the book of James begins, in fact, in this section. If a person finds himself destitute as a brother or sister of various things needed in life, and we say, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, what has been accomplished? Has that individual been benefited? James answers the question, beginning, in fact, in verse 17. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. How is my faith and yours manifested? In what way is it, in fact, such that one knows that one has it? It's by virtue of the works which it accomplishes by faith in life. In fact, the rest of that chapter drives home that point in a rather graphic fashion. Abraham was the friend of God because he did what God said do, verses 22 to 24. And is it not still true in verse 26? Just as surely as we know the character of what life and death is, death is the separation of the spirit from the body, so too James says faith without works is dead. Thus is my faith in yours a working faith. Is it active and alive and well by the things that it accomplishes day by day by virtue of the faith revealed in the Scriptures? One of the elements of practicality touched upon by that faith is in chapter 3. What about my language in yours? Does faith demand that certain things must be said and certain things must not? 
Chapter 3 will answer that question for us. The tongue is a world of iniquity. It is a fire. It is, in fact, an unruly evil that no man can tame. Quote verses 5, 6, and 8 of James chapter 3. But that doesn't mean that we must not try. In fact, we we're rather boldly told, beginning in verse 1, that just as surely as you can use a rudder to turn a ship and bits to turn a horse, so too there's a small member in our body and it can accomplish so much evil or so much good. The decision on that regard is left to you and me. Which way will I use my tongue and which way will you use yours? Is it for the way that's noble and good and honest and right? Or is it for the way that is somewhat ennoble and somewhat unwholesome? In verses 9 and 10, we simply read this, A fountain can't spew forth both sweet water and bitter at the same time. And so too, the tongue ought not bring forth the two things at once. James rather said it this way, My brethren, such things ought not so to be. May we ever strive to bring our tongue into total, total control of the blessed nature of the Savior and let Him use it for good things, proper things, noble things. May it be guided by that wisdom from above and not from the wisdom that's beneath. That wisdom from above is earth, or rather that's for not from above is earthly, sensual, and devilish, verses 15 and 16, but that wisdom from above that is superintended and guided by the Word of God is wisdom that's pure and full of mercy and good fruits and meek, verse number 17. No wonder we're urged to seek that wisdom from above. The same wisdom we were urged in chapter 1 to pray for if we lack it. And so into chapter 4. Notice that the first few verses discuss lusts. That's right, lusts, L-U-S-T-S. These lusts are not good things at all. In that, he says, where do wars and fightings come from? They come from lust in one form or another. And those lusts in verses 3 and 4 are shown to be the very outcrops of things material and worldly in character. No wonder we're admonished in verse 4 to ever remember this. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The source of all those lusts and all the attractions of the world ultimately arise from concern for the world, and as such, those that follow that are not friends of God. That's an ever-timely message, not only for James's day, but our day, isn't it? May we understand we live in the world, but may we not be of it. May our plane of thought be higher than that. For isn't it still the case in Philippians 4, 8, we need to think on things that are true and honest and pure and just and lovely and of good report. For if there indeed is any virtue and honesty, may we think on those things. In James chapter 4, we quickly find other brief admonitions like, Draw nigh to God and He'll draw nigh to you. God resisteth the proud but giveth grace to the humble. Verses 6, 7, and 8. And may we always keep in mind, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil is not a being of sufficient power that he can force you or me to do anything if it's not our choice to do it. All he can do is place the temptation before us. The decision is left to us. Will I succumb to it or by the grace of God through the power of the blood of his son will I overcome it? That decision rests with us. 
Satan cannot overpower you or me if it's not our will to let him do it. Revelation 12 verse 11 still says that there is a threefold attack on the devil he cannot defeat. It involves the word of the Lord, the blood of the Lamb, and being willing to die for the cause of Christ. Where is my loyalty and yours? Is it with Satan or is it with the Savior? In James 4, beginning in verse 13, we also appreciate the brevity of life and its uncertainty. Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city and buy and sell and get gain. Notice that's the way the world seems to work, isn't it? We're busy, we're frenetic, we frantically pursue the things so often involving day-to-day -day activities of career and things. It's fine to have a career, isn't it? That's God's blessing that allows us to take care of ourselves and family, but where is the focus in life? James says, those that take that approach and not the approach of verses 15 and 16 are in a sore condition indeed, aren't they? He says, this is what we ought to say. If the Lord will, we'll go into such a city and buy and sell. May we always temper the things we do with the will of God and make our decisions in a way that is understanding of His will and the accomplishment of eternity for us. It's still true in verses 13 and 14, life is a vapor. It appears for a little while, then vanishes away. So it is in verse 17, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. When you and I know of something wholesome and good, and in accordance to God's word, and the opportunity is before us to accomplish it, and we choose not to do so, we have become guilty of the sin of omission. We have left undone what God intended by His grace and opportunity for us to do. In chapter 5, the opening few verses, make note to us of the recognition of riches that are gotten by ill means. That is to say, possessions and money that one acquires by taking advantage, perhaps in a sinful way, of others. James says those moth-eaten riches will not be of any good in terms of the sight of heaven. No wonder we're urged to work honestly. Not in a, such a way to take advantage or rob or steal either directly or indirectly from others. Isn't it true in that chapter that we're also admonished in that way to be people of patience? Appreciating that Elijah prayed and for a long time, three and a half years, it never rained. He prayed again and it did rain. That patience will involve prayer. So in verse 16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. In this book, we've seen the nature of persistent prayer, the power of godly wisdom, and the nature of the recognition of the trial of one's faith will produce experience and patience. <clears throat> It closes rather abruptly in verses 19 and 20 of James 5 with this admonition. Brethren, if any of you be overtaken in a fault, and one converteth him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. You and I should have a very tender compassion for those who have wandered astray from the fold of God those who have not remained faithful to that regard and to that way of life and should hope and pray and by our own labors to help them return to the faithful fold of the nature of heaven. The book of James has indeed been a masterpiece of practical Christian living.
touching everything from the use of our tongue to the nature of their lust and how they must be kept in control and ultimately how that faith is not to be kept with respect of persons. On to the book of 1 Peter we shall now go. In five chapters we also see in the book of 1 Peter the amazing power but it's presented from a different perspective. What do we find in these five chapters of 1 Peter? We find in fact the following set of ideas. Some have rather dramatically presented 1 Peter in this way. Five chapters and five great things are presented. Let's highlight what these five great things are by looking bit, bit by bit at each one of the five chapters. First of all, Peter wrote this book. He was one of the apostles of our Lord. And as that rather dramatic and bold apostle, isn't it interesting that the issue that seems to be the centerpin of this book is the matter of suffering? Sixteen times in the book we find mention of the word suffer or some derivative of it. How should one deal under the weight of suffering? What should be one's thoughts? How should one deal with the matter of one's life? Let's begin a journey through 1 Peter and see some lessons that might help us deal with the afflictions and the unpleasant matters that may well surround us in life. In chapter number 1, first thing to be noted is the very text that Brother Jeff read a few moments ago. In verses 3 through 5, despite the character of afflictions on earth and despite the burdensome way that they can weight us down in despair, Peter holds out before us this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven, waiting for you. One of the first things we can remember is when unpleasant things come, remember what's waiting beyond death. Remember there's a God in heaven who has a place reserved for you there. We often make reservations in life at a hotel or at some other place, perhaps for a wedding or some other place where a reservation's needed. Dear friend, you can have a res reserved place in heaven. Have you made those reservations? Is there a place with your name on it waiting in the mansions of heaven? John 14, 1-6 says there can be. Peter reminds his readers first and foremost, make sure you've got reservations and pay attention to the blessedness of God who makes that reservation possible. Verses 7 through 9 of chapter 1, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. That helps us appreciate, doesn't it, the book of Romans. In Romans, the 8th chapter, we still see the power of this text. I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Peter, it seems, echoes the same sentiment. The end of our faith is the salvation of our soul. In verses 10 through 13, we are reminded that the matter of salvation is so great and so amazing that the prophets of the Old Testament desired to look into it. They prophesied about the sufferings of Christ and the things of it, but they never lived to appreciate it themselves. In fact, even the angels look into those things. The gospel is that great. It's that mighty. Angels of heaven are astounded by it. And the prophets of the Old Testament longed and yearned to understand and appreciate it themselves, but they died before the Savior was ever born. Aren't you and I blessed and privileged to live this side of Calvary? 
to where you and I have in absolute existence the gospel. We can read and study and, and obey it. The Old Testament prophets yearned to do that, but they never could. No wonder in verse 16 we're admonished, Be ye holy, for I am holy. As those that are Christians and desire us to live pleasing to God, just as God is holy, we must be, or else we live beneath our privileges. In verses 18 and 19, what was the purchase price for this blessedness of ours? Was it silver or gold or something like that? Not at all. He says, in fact, the redemptive power was purchased by the nature of Christ's blood. That was what redeemed you and me, nothing less and nothing else. No wonder in verse 22 it says then that you and I have our souls purified by obeying the truth. Obeying the truth. No substitute for obedience. When we obey, we understand verse 25 fully. For indeed the word of God endureth forever. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. And Peter reminds us that God's word shall stand the test of time. No wonder in chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 we're quickly admonished. To grow, even though we may be at one time newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. To grow, to mature in the faith. No wonder in that chapter we see a wonderful description about you and me as being priests of God. Priests. The Old Testament was blessed with a family of Aaron who could serve as priest unto God in the Levite organization. And yet you and I today as members of the blood-bought body of Christ are priests before the very presence and power of the God of heaven. All of us, priests. In verse 9, we're described as a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You and I thus again are told, don't live beneath the great wonders and privileges God has in store for those that are His priests. In verse 12, may we thus live in a way to where others on the day of judgment will have been brought to faith through our example. Christian example, isn't it wonderful? That others can see Christ living in us and come to realize the power of that greatness. As chapter 2 rolls onward, we encounter the greatness of Christ's sacrifice and the greatness of His example. In fact, he left as an example that we should follow in his footsteps, verses 21 and 22. Just as surely as he gave his body on that old tree, referring to Calvary, we too should understand he is the chief bishop and shepherd of our souls, verse 25. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, women, wives, if you will, are urged to be in subjection to your husbands, just as Sarah was in subjection to Abraham. The recognition of that subjection amplifies itself for all Christianity, beginning in verse 11. In 1 Peter 3, verses 11 and 12, we're told to eschew evil. That is, don't follow evil, but pursue that which is good. Why? In verse number 12, we understand the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers. You and I have a heavenly Father who not only will hear, He's promised to answer our petitions and our concerns God's eyes are over the righteous, verse 12. No wonder then there's a great responsibility in verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's within you with meekness and with fear. Are you and I biblically knowledgeable enough to give answer to those that ask questions of us? Why do you do what you do the way you do it? Why do you have faith the way you have it? 
Can we give book, chapter, and verse in answer to the plan of salvation or to the elements of worship, the organization of the church? Give answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that's within you. In 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 21, we're reminded also about, again, the fact that you and I are brought to God by Christ. And he closes that in verse 21 with a way, the final act that brings us to him. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And very quickly the chapter closes and chapter 4 opens, describing yet again some practical ways that you and I can appreciate Christian, wholesome, faithful living. It begins, verses 1 to 6, with elements of obedience stated in the following way. Though there will be a fiery trial, you will be tested and tried. You must overcome. Verses 3 through 6, many things must in fact be left behind in life. No drinking, no carousing, no kinds of things like that. That's not a part of Christian living. But rather in those times understand that though temptations may come, draw near to the Savior and implement your talents for His glory. Verses 9 and 10. In verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We should have God's Word on our lips, not only from a pulpit, but all the time. So much so that in verse 16, we understand the nature of the name that we wear. A beautiful verse indeed. You and I wear the name Christian. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. Do you and I bring glory to God as we wear that name? We should, we must, we ought to. In verses 17 and 18 then, we have a glimpse of God's wrath on the disobedient. If judgment beginneth the household of God, what shall be the end of them that have not obeyed the gospel? That's a scary question, friend. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, how do you think God will react? You have run roughshod over the blood of His Son. You've ignored it completely. Do you suppose He'll show you any mercy? Do you suppose He'll offer you any hope of an eternity at all outside of hell? The Bible holds no hope for you in that state. On to chapter 5. In the first four verses, elders are addressed. We're blessed here at Pippin to have elders. We should hold up their hands in faithfulness and encourage them in their work, for they do have an important and great work. The elders are told that they are given a matter of bishopric over the church. Shepherds, if you will, over the local congregation. Jesus indeed is the chief shepherd and bishop indeed, but they have the responsibility to guide, to lead, to set an example, to ensure the word is taught. As our elders do that, may we encourage them in that work. As chapter 5 gets to verse 7, we're reminded to cast all your cares on him, for he careth for you. And verse 8 explains why. That care will in part address the fact that we have a chief enemy. There's one walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's an enemy out there and it's the devil. No wonder we need to appreciate the power of Christ at our side and with vigilance to appreciate the strength of that enemy and to overcome. At that point, the book of 1 Peter closes. And one of the final statements Peter admonishes with regard to Mark, making the statement about the nature of faithfulness to be seen in, even in him. With the closing of that book, might we turn the page to 2 Peter and also find that there's a very different kind of letter to be shown to us here. 2 Peter, three chapters. 
It is a masterpiece discussing Christian growth. In fact, let's highlight some of the features of it if we might. In, first, in 2 Peter 1, in verses 3 and 4, we read of this. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, to the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. That alone is a tremendous statement. God has provided all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not some of them, not a few of them, not most of them. All of them whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The world has nothing to offer eternally for us. It offers only corruption and lust, but we can overcome it. How so, Peter? Verses 5 through 7. Giving all diligence add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He was, he's forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Is it any wonder in verse 10, make certain or give diligence to make your calling and election sure? Friend, are you absolutely sure your name's enrolled in the Lamb's book of life? Are you sure you're saved? Peter says you can be. Make sure of it. Add these ingredients of the Christian graces to your life. Faith, virtue, temperance, knowledge, godliness, and the others we mentioned. As we grow in the faith, we should add them to our life. As we add all of them, in verses 12 to 15, we're reminded of what every gospel preacher and Bible teacher knows also well. You and I must be busy reminding others about the truth of God. So many of the elements of the Bible we've heard hundreds of times since we were young. We always need to be reminded. Thus Peter said, I will remind you until I, in fact, put off the cloak of this mortality. The last words of my mouth are still going to be reminding you of the truth of the gospel. And he said, it's a sure word of truth, verses 18 and 19, the last two verses of the chapter, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Oh, the blessing we have in the Bible. It was superintended by the Holy Spirit. Written, in fact, it is his words written by the a man who, who had a, the pen in his hand, but the Holy Spirit wrote it. Chapter 1 has taught us about the ingredients of spiritual growth. We need to add the Christian graces to our lives. Chapter 2, the opposition to spiritual growth. What hindrances are there that may stifle my growth? First and foremost, false teachers. Individuals who have the gall, perhaps even sincere, but the gall to teach things opposed to the Word of God. Verse number 1 begins the saga. Even as there were false prophets among the people, there shall also be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. Peter, how can it be? Individuals who bring upon themselves swift destruction because they teach what the Bible does not teach. False teachers. And no, Peter said, they will be among us just as surely as they were among the prophets of Old Testament days. No wonder we need to then appreciate the soundness 
and the reservation of relying on the Bible alone. Verses 5 and following make mention of Noah, the faithful preacher of righteousness. And may we be like him because there are others who, in fact, were far less noble. Can we remember, in fact, these false teachers described in verses 9 and following? Like clouds without water, like wells that are empty, like individuals and other things that bring on unpleasant and ennoble things. It's no wonder in verses 18 to 22, we're taught that we can fall from grace. Just because we've known the gospel once and obeyed it, we can quickly turn from it and be eternally lost. Just like that dog that turns, though it turns back to its vomit, that sow to her wallowing right back in that mire, we can fall from grace too. No wonder that in chapter 3, after discussing the ingredients of spiritual growth and the opposition to it, chapter 3 is the motivation for it. Why should you and I grow spiritually? Here's the reason. Because the Lord's coming back someday. And all of us will stand before Him in judgment and give an accounting for the deeds done in the body and in this life as to whether we have grown spiritually or not. It begins in verses 1 to 7. In those verses we read, God destroyed the, wa the world by water once in the days of Noah. But in verse 7 we're told it'll not be by water again, it'll be by fire. For when the Lord comes, and isn't it still true in verse 8, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We are still told God's not desirous of any to be lost. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. But it's long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. For the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. Are you ready for that day? Verse 11 goes on to say, Seeing then the manner of these things, ought not we be those that live in all holy conversation and godliness? We look for new heavens and a new earth, verse 13. And as we look for them, the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, 2 Peter 3, 15. One of the last thoughts in that chapter and also in our lesson today is the admonition of verse 17 to be steadfast and verse 18, the theme of the whole book. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And with that, the curtain closes on Second Peter. Spiritual growth, the opposition to it, the admonition and injunction for it, and its ingredients. What about your spiritual growth today? Are you a Christian? We've already seen in more than one of these books the terror of falling into the hands of a living God without being a member of His body. Friend, that's too scary to contemplate, too frightful to imagine. If you're not a Christian today, please think soberly, think seriously, think urgently about the nature of some of the things contained in the books of James, 1 Peter, and 2 Peter. If you are a Christian, we should each feel more blessed now than we did when we arrived this morning what God has done for us, what He makes possible through us, and the hope that awaits us at the end of the way. Reservations in heaven. If you don't have reservations made in heaven today, it's time to make them. Jesus commands that you believe Jesus, believe in Him as the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Savior, and be baptized. If we could help you do that today, we'd love to. If we need to aid you to return to your first love by praying for you and with you, we could do that too. If either of those things would be the need of your heart today, won't you let it be known if you would, please, while together we stand and while we sing.